few years ago, I was in uh, an airport in another part of the country, and the TSA agent looked at my ID, and he kind of smirked and looked back to me and said, hey, are you a politician? And of course, <laughs> I didn't want to get into him with the fact that if I was a politician, I would have the ID of the place where I was representing, not right. Washington, D.C., but that's kind of how people in a lot of the country see us. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or see the show notes from this episode, you can do that over at triphacksdc.com slash podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Trip Hacks DC Tours. TripHacks DC tours run year-round, so no matter what time of year you're planning your trip, we can help show you around. You can learn more over at TripHacksDC.com slash tours. Today I am joined by Alex Baca, a longtime friend of mine and a person who always comes to mind when I think about the local side of Washington, D.C. Hi. Thanks, Rob, for having me. (laughs) This is super fun. Well, great. (laughs) Well, we're talking about Washington versus D.C., which I think will be a fascinating topic. And for folks who are listening, a lot of the listeners to the podcast are out-of-towners, they're visitors, or they're coming soon, and they're probably thinking, oh, I don't get it. What what does this mean, Washington versus D.C.? Isn't it the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think we'll sort of work our way around to my meta theory about Washington plus D.C. Um, But I think that the general conception um, and something of a shorthand is that Washington is the federal stuff. It's Congress. It's the monuments. It's what you see when you're here uh, visiting the city. And D.C. is like the real authentic D.C. and the people who live here and, you know, are really the soul of it. As some background, I, I work for what started as a local blog and has now expanded into a nonprofit advocacy organization called Greater Greater Washington, um, which is how I know you. And many guests of the podcast. And many guests of this podcast. Made reference to their <laughs> relationship to the blog. So definitely a place where we all tend to congregate. So, yeah, so the blog has been around for um, over 11 years at this point, which is crazy to think about. You know, speaking of local D.C., there was this, like, kind of micro trend in the late 2000s of, like, writing blogs about your neighborhood. So lots of people who moved to the city sort of took to local blogging platforms to write what they were thinking and what they were seeing. There's a lot of local politics stuff. There was a lot of, you know, local neighborhood news and stuff. So folks who are listening are perhaps planning a trip to town. And when they're looking up things to do or they're looking at TripHex DC travel tips, uh, a lot of them are admittedly about touring the monuments, going to the museums, getting a tour through your Congress member of the Capitol. And these are what we're calling the Washington side of things. But it's not that you have to just do that stuff. You can do the D.C. stuff too. And I think that if you're listening, hopefully by the end of this episode, we will convince you that there's a lot of really cool stuff. And, you know, it's not that you have to only do one or do the other, but a good mix might make for a great trip. Yeah. I mean, I think for people, you know, coming to visit the city, it does depend on your appetite. Um, I grew up in Maryland, um, but not in like the D.C. region part of Maryland. Um, I'm from like the very middle of the state. So I got more exposure to like D.C. as a neighboring city than lots of people do, but also I was, like, far enough out of the region and I didn't have parents who worked in D.C. Um, like, that my, like, school trips still had an element of, like, we go into D.C. to look at the monuments and go to the museums and stuff. Um, but, you know, we did that 
multiple times per year. Whereas, you know, I, I have lived elsewhere. I lived in San Francisco and then I lived in Cleveland, Ohio. But um, like you would meet people who are like, oh, I've only been to D.C. like once in my life and I was in like seventh grade. And so it's always fun to have those conversations, um, especially because, you know, as adults, like people that I know now are coming back to D.C. for for work or for like professional travel or whatever. And so it's fun to talk about some of the local stuff. You know, we have this federal core. The city was planned that way. The monuments are all near each other like for a specific reason. They were, you know, planned to be this sort of like low and open federal city. Um, Pierre L'Enfant is responsible for that. L'Enfant is responsible for that. And, you know, we have lots of organizations dedicated to maintaining that sort of culture in the city. Um, You know, the Committee of 100 is a big one. They're the folks who don't want to have any tall buildings in town, for example, right? They are very doctrinaire to the height limit, um, you know, for the purposes of historic preservation and sort of preserving the original intent of what the city should be, which I think brings up some interesting tensions. You know, like, Lots of people live here. We're, we've, have we cracked 700,000 residents? Approximately 700,000. We're not going to have another census till 2020, but the estimate is that more than 700,000 people live in Washington, D.C., which one of the questions I sometimes ask in my trivia tour is, which states are smaller than the District of Columbia? And actually, there's two, Vermont and Wyoming. We have a lot of people here. <laughs> um, so states that are smaller, but also like lots of cities in America are smaller too. So, you know, Cleveland, Ohio has about... 380,000 residents. So there's more people in D.C. than there are in lots of cities like throughout the country. That's right. So 700,000 people live in the city, uh, in the District of Columbia, a a little bit more, I think, than 5 million in the Washington, D.C. metro area, which is the size of some European countries. I mean, it's not a small amount of people. Yeah. People live here. People, you know, make their home here and they make their home in the city. And, you know, for me, that's especially important because I Moved back here last summer after about five years away. And for me, it's home. And I'm very happy to be back. I live in Mount Pleasant, which is, you know, a really, you know, amazing sort of like stereotypically kind of quaint neighborhood and that it's very walkable and it has like a main street and stuff like that, which is adorable and lovely. And I very much appreciate having access to that. But, you know, there is there is this tension, I think, not just between like the Washington and D.C., but also the sort of like, what is the city and who's it for, Um, you know? I do write about sometimes the, you know, very sort of like thorny and stressful issues around gentrification and city change and stuff. But I think in the context of like what we're talking about here, that sort of tension between visitors and residents is also like very present. It's not a negative thing at all, but I think that like there is a sense of people coming here and seeing the city and maybe not acknowledging that like there's a lot of it. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of other things that you can do. Um, and, you know, I don't I certainly don't expect anybody to, like, go on the most localized personal tour in, like, three days or whatever. And, like, it is, I think, pretty important to see things that are relevant to our national identity. Like, I think it's pretty powerful to stand on the mall and look around and see what that says about who we are as a country. But, yeah, it's certainly not the only thing here. I, I tend to agree. I give tours of the monuments memorials. And so I'm certainly not, you know, telling folks that they shouldn't see that stuff. Certainly, it's a big part of the Tripex DC business model. Uh, but a, a mix is always good because sometimes people will contact me as well. And they'll say, you know, I went to Washington, D.C. a few years ago and I saw the Lincoln Memorial and I saw the Capitol. And now I want to do all the good local stuff. I don't want to do that boring touristy stuff anymore. And there's so much of everything that, um, you know, I, I try to say – do a, little bit, do a little bit of a mix. Do some neighborhood stuff. Do some maybe federal uh, national stuff that you didn't do last time and, and that's sort of the way that I try to approach it. But we already said about 700,000 residents of the District of Columbia. So let's talk about who these people are because it reminds me of uh, – 
a trip I took a few years ago. I was in uh, an airport in another part of the country and the TSA agent looked at my ID and he uh, kind of smirked and looked back to me and said, hey, are you a politician? <laughs> and of course, I didn't want to get into him with the fact that if I was a politician, I would have the idea of the place where I was representing, not Washington, right. <laughs> D.C. But that's kind of how people in a lot of the country see us is, oh, you're from Washington, D.C. You're either a politician or a lobbyist or a lawyer somehow affiliated with them. A good way to think about D.C. is that like D.C. is just a city. It's a coastal city. That's and not that different from New York, Philadelphia, Boston or any of the other nearby. Not meaningfully so really, like especially in terms of like electorate and sort of like current city issues and stuff. And in fact, um, you know, and there's a much more complicated history between the sort of, you know, the federal government and the local government and how sort of budgeting and taxes work. But we're also a, we ha- we are a very like we have a lot of money in our budget as a city right now. So like. We're also, like, doing well. Um, you know, lots of people still have in their heads D.C. DC is, you know, the murder capital and Mary and Barry smoking crack and stuff, which is, like, a super offensive way to treat, like, any place. Um, and completely outdated. And completely outdated and, like, completely unfair um, and really reductive. So, like, I totally disagree with that. I, you know, think I would have disagreed with that at the time. Um, but, you know, we are also... For for the you know the stress that has come with contemporary urban issues, which largely includes like housing affordability and traffic and access to jobs and sort of like wages that have not kept pace with inflation, like we are providing services and public safety is better and we do have new development and you know I think there's a lot of big questions about who's able to access that and who gets for like who is not able to share in that prosperity. That said, we are just kind of a city just like everybody else. We have a budget. We fund services. We do elect our politicians that run the municipal government. And there is a level of direct representation that people who live here can sort of exact some sway over. I think that's interesting because when you do visit, you know, you get off the plane at the airport and then a taxi driver drives you to your hotel and that person is not a lawyer. And then you arrive at the hotel and the person working at the front desk checks you in. And then every day someone comes and cleans your room and you go out and you go to to a museum and you take a tour. And none of these people fit the mold of the politician or the lobbyist. They're all regular folks working regular jobs. And so when you're you're visiting, try to pay attention to the people that you're coming across, you know, that you're encountering and realize that they're just regular folks like you. Yeah. And they deserve good wages and protected jobs (laughs) Um, and affordable housing and decent transit, which is, you know, that's my advocacy spiel. (laughs) Right. It is an expensive place to live. That's a question that that people ask me all the time Uh, out of curiosity or otherwise. They say, what would it cost to buy one of those houses in Georgetown that I saw the other day? And a million dollars. Well, they, they don't seem too shocked because across the country, affordability is becoming a big problem. And But but it is. It's a very expensive place to live. And so even though I, I do well with my tour business, it's uh, still tough to get by sometimes. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's all, you know, in a sort of series of trade-offs, right? Like you can live very affordably in Cleveland for sure. And I did. And what you pay per month can afford you much more sort of size-wise than you would get here. That said, the sort of like the economic mobility is not as strong. The region is not as, you know, like well-connected. Like there are a lot of drawbacks to being in what is effectively a declining region. And D.C. is not that. We are growing. We have been growing. Um, Growth can strain and pressure things. But for the most part, you know, people move here not, in my experience, out of some fetishization of, you know, authentic D.C. or because they're particularly obsessed with Congress, but because they get a job here or they may have a base here that, you know, 
provides them better support in order to get a job and that might they might have somewhere to live or to stay. Um, and that's just kind of like fundamentally how humans like have worked over time. <laughs> so, But I want to press you on that uh, a little bit because what you just said kind of feeds into this stereotype that I hear all the time, which is that nobody's from D.C. Everybody's from someplace else. And that is statistically untrue. So I pulled the statistics and one third of the population of the District of Columbia was born in the District of Columbia. And one half of the population of the District of Columbia was born either in D.C., Maryland, or Virginia. So it's certainly true that a large number, you know, half half of the population is not a small number by any means. But this idea that no one, absolutely no one is from here is certainly not factually correct. It is not correct. And I, that's another thing that I do think is actually pretty outright offensive. Um, WAMU um, had a good essay, I think, about a year ago about how that's a really racialized comment. Um, because like, D.C. has historically been a black city um, with, you know, black majority power. Um, And the idea that you would say that no one is from here, like, completely erases sort of that legacy, but also just says that, like, I don't see black people, like, as, like, you know, fully, you know, residents of this place, um, which is, like, pretty offensive um, and totally untrue. Um, You know, that said, like, there is racial diversity in who lives in D.C., um, like, there are white people who grew up here as well. So, like, it's just a, like, weird and strange and kind of offensive thing to say that, like, kind of reinforces a lot of, like, stereotypes of, like, D.C. as, like, this, like, corrupt swamp or whatever. Like, I don't love this, like, canard, but it is true. People elect officials to send here. They come to D.C. to make laws because that's how we have this weird system of federal lawmaking. So, like, whatever. But those are choices made by people across the country. So like any accountability that you may want to have, you know, towards someone that's representing you takes place in your city and in your town and not here. Yeah, I I think that that's something that kind of irks me sometimes is in when you watch the news uh, or you hear politicians complaining, they will use things like Washington is broken. Washington's trying to ruin your life. They want to raise your taxes. They want to ruin your health care. And hey, wait a second. We have nothing to do with these people. These are your people. You sent them here. So it's not uh, the residents that really uh, that live here who impact that sort of thing. And it goes into a whole discussion of D.C. statehood. But that's a whole, uh, a whole separate <laughs> podcast episode. I, I do hope to have at some point. But we'll have to skip that for today. Yeah, I would be very excited about that one. But, but let's, let's set the record straight a little bit about the demographics and who lives in D.C. So Washington, D.C. has for a long time uh, had the nickname Chocolate City. And that speaks to the points we were making just now about the fact that it has a large African-American population. Now, that's ebbed and flowed over the history of the city and the country. Uh, in At one point, it was over 70 percent. Uh, right now, the estimate is a little under 50 percent. And so it's still a large percentage, but it's not a majority anymore. It is not a majority anymore. Um, I think... Um I don't I, I actually wrote this post. I did not bring the data with me, but um, we still are a majority minority city. And so that, you know, the white chair of the city is growing and the black chair is declining. And we also have an increasing Latinx popula- population. So we are multiracial here. And I think it's important to, you know, not necessarily speak in binaries. Um, and I, I would encourage people who live here to recognize or not or, sorry, people who are visiting here to sort of note that as well, not just here, but sort of in their own cities. Yeah, the demographics have changed. Um, but city demographics change a lot. We have like a $15.5 billion budget. We have a tax base in D.C. in a way that we did not um, in the early 90s um, and sort of the decades prior to that. It was very important to 
elected officials to restore that tax base because you do need a tax base to provide services. You need tax bases to pay for schools. You need that for public safety, all that kind of stuff. And there are a few notable immigrant communities. You did mention that there's a sizable Latinx population. Um, There's a very large Salvadorian community in D.C. And uh, that's important because if you're into the food scene, that's certainly one thing that you can uh, experience when you're here. I think the neighborhood that you mentioned that you live in, uh, Mount Pleasant, is not a, typically a place where many visitors will uh, make a point to visit, but it is a place where I think a lot of that community does live. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and to the food point, I want to say that this is maybe another WAMU story. Um, that Martin Osterman wrote about our bodega culture and how it's like different from New York, and a lot of that was predicated on Salvadoran immigrants opening shops like when they moved up here. So we don't have the 24-hour bodega culture that, you know, New York does, but we do have our sort of fair share of local markets that I think are representative of that. And that's kind of one thing that you can visually identify as a visitor. Um, and I'm going to make sure I, I pull up all these articles that you're mentioning so <laughs> like that, that everyone yeah. who's listening can go into the show notes afterwards and find the articles, give them a read because they're all excellent articles. I agree. Totally. Yeah. We also have a large Ethiopian uh, population, I believe the largest population outside of Ethiopia. Uh, Marcus Samuelson, famous chef uh, of S- Swedish and Ethiopian descent. He did a documentary special on I don't know if it was PBS or local public TV, but it was about uh, the Ethiopian food and culture here in D.C. And it was excellent. Unfortunately, I can't find uh, an easily accessible copy of that online. (laughs) If I ever do, I'll make sure I I post it up in the show notes. But we do have a large uh, Ethiopian population as well, which I think is interesting to a lot of visitors because their home city or home state might not. And so that's a culture that they might be experiencing for the first time. Yeah, totally. I remember being in the Bay Area and like there was like maybe like two Ethiopian restaurants. So when the sort of D.C. diaspora in the Bay Area was like, ah, we're craving Ethiopian food, the, the choices were a bit limited. And, and when you live here, <laughs> you crave it because it's easy to get and it's delicious. And yeah, when it's gone, you realize, oh, it's really hard to, to get again. Quite difficult to find. <laughs> uh, Washington, D.C. also has a, a large deaf and hard of hearing population. Uh, I think part of that is that we have Gallaudet, I never pronounced that correctly, uh, University uh, here in D.C. And so I think I had read that they just opened the first Starbucks near their campus, which is very specifically for folks who use ASL or who don't um, you know, use traditional English or who are deaf or hard of hearing, which I think is really cool and interesting. Yeah, it's great. Gallaudet is is like an amazing asset to DC. Um, and so one of the things that we've uh, talked about, like on sort of like the nonprofit side, is like making sure that we have ASL interpretation at things that we're going to, and making sure that like you know, there's uh, like Charles Allen was you know sponsoring legislation to close caption movies. He's um, a he's a city council city member. council member. Yeah. Um, and so like. There are things like that um, that I think are are really critical, you know, to you know serving people's needs, but also like things like that can work really well for people who aren't deaf or hard of hearing. I think it's a good example of why we sort of have a universal mandate to consider accessibility more often than we do. Yeah, I think really hard about accessibility. I really am trying hard to do a podcast episode about it because it's a really important topic, uh, especially the the National Mall. The Lincoln Memorial and Jefferson Memorial were built before, well before ADA or any considerations for accessibility. So they're, they're tough, although fortunately the rest are pretty accessible. And the city in general is doing a better job than it used to. And we have one of the best examples of sort of ADA compliance with Metro. Um, oh, that's true. So because Metro was um, one of the first systems built immediately after the passage of ADA, a lot of the features that sort of people can visually identify 
um, with, as Metro, um, like or things that just look like kind of common design elements, um, like the flashing lights when trains are arriving. Like that's supposed to be a pretty prominent visual thing for people who can't hear trains. Yes, we do. I do have an episode all about Metro. If you're curious about that, you can head on over to the website and listen to that podcast. Another uh, community I want to mention is the LGBT community. This, I feel like, was really big in D.C. for a period of time. And now in the 2010s, it has kind of dispersed uh, and grown in many cities across the country. So maybe it's just as big as it ever has been, but it doesn't feel like it because maybe other cities have caught up with D.C. But how far back does the LGBT community in D.C. go? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I don't have like the extensive history of it in my head, but the sort of like I think things that people pinpoint is sort of DuPont Circle in the 70s. Um, so that you had a lot of mostly white gay men sort of, you know, early gentrifiers buying their homes and sort of making space for themselves in DuPont. Um, and there's still a long legacy of that when we talk about pride and we talk about, you know, many of those like queer specific events, like they are happening, um, around DuPont. But, you know, there's like, (laughs) there's a lot to say about sort of how queerness is a little bit more diffuse now and sort of how access to spaces is not defined like specifically by physical spaces um you know that's not just like dating apps but as sort of there is a there's both a broader acceptance and also like ways to meet people that don't require you to physically go somewhere um that i think that like that diffusion um is like is pretty interesting and you know that happen. you're gonna see that nationwide of course but this sort of came up when town which is a gay nightclub um, which has since closed. Which has since closed. Yeah. So when town closed, I mean, there was sort of this back and forth about like, yeah, this is actually like pretty devastating and traumatic to lose this sta- space that is really important to people. You know, at the same time, I, you know, knew enough people who did not feel like they needed to go to town to meet people or find their community. Uh, I want to ask about a few subcultures <laughs> that I find interesting. Uh, two of them actually have to do with music. I did an entire podcast episode about going to concerts in D.C. Uh, learned a lot about that topic myself, the fact that D.C. has a much larger live music scene than many people, even me, uh, had realized. But go-go music is something that most listeners have probably never heard of, but people who have lived in this area for a while know exactly what it is. So what is go-go music go-go is sort of this like evolution of like funk and soul plus like a lot of bucket drums <laughs> like I, like i you know it's a specific style to dc and like you, you know it when you hear it it's mostly the drums there's the type of drum called a rototom that is used to great effect in go-go it's fun you can dance to it i like i listen i mean like i say this as like a white person, like who feels more of like a consumer of this person than like a, like an active and authentic participant. It is fun. It is upbeat. If you go to a Washington Nationals game, if someone on the home team hits a home run, they play a very famous Chuck Brown go go song uh, called "Bustin' Loose." And at at one point, the team decided they were going to change the song, and there was absolute outrage that this could happen. And they brought it back right away, and they still do play that song to this day. Uh, perhaps some music fans might remember DC Hardcore, which was it the 80s, 90s that this was really big? Yeah. I mean, this is like what I got into as a teen and thought was like the coolest thing ever. So tell us about what DC Hardcore <laughs> is and what were, what are some bands that fall into this genre? I mean, you know, Minor Threat and then subsequently Fugazi are sort of your, your token ones. But one of the like just 
lovely things about DC is there's just like infinite bands and like you can go dig for seven inches and there's just like infinite obscure seven inches. Um, but yeah, I mean, DC had a punk scene. Um, we were sort of the center for uh, like this kind of style of like what I think was a more inclusive because it was deliberately less violent sort of style of hardcore, um, which like I think is important. Um, you know, my experience with like hardcore and punk in other cities is that like the ta- like the crowds tend to get pretty violent and like the idea. You know, you kind of want to go to a show to beat somebody up. And I think DC sort of distinguished it itself by not, um, you know, not embracing that and sort of actively rejecting that. But yeah, I mean, it was certainly a presence in the city and it still is. I mean, there's still like shows at St. Stephen's, which is near where I live. And it's like, it's great. Um, That's a small venue. That didn't even get brought up in our uh, (laughs) live music episode. I think it was too small to even mention in the episode. Yeah. I mean, it's a church and we have a long, you know, history of house shows here right i mean a lot of my early 20s was spent like sweating in somebody's basement like um like group house like listening to bands here um so that is very close to my heart of course um but yeah i mean it is especially again like having lived in other places and you know being friends with people who are sort of into their own local music scene there is a reverence for dc hardcore that sort of extends well beyond our city and another type of music that i don't think i wrote in our notes, but uh, that I remembered is bluegrass, um, very popular around here. And I I can never even describe this when people ask. I I guess it's kind of like country, but really not. And it's it's tough for me to pin down exactly what genre bluegrass is most closely related to. Yeah, I am like like way less well-versed in like the sort of like bluegrass parts of DC. But that's another thing that has like that pops up at some like funny points in history. Um, so Fort Reno, which is this park in Northwest DC, um, has concerts every summer. And, um, in the very, very early days of this, um, like seventies, eighties, like some of like DC, like had a blue collar, like more working class community that like did sort of manifest through some like bluegrass bands and they played at Fort Reno. Um, and I wish I knew more about that because I think that's fascinating. And they have a yearly festival on Kingman Island, which is a tiny little island in the middle of the Anacostia River and people go there and it's uh, just a fun time to be had even for folks who don't typically listen to that kind of music. It's just a good way to experience the culture. It's free and summery and just nice. (laughs) Of course. I want to go back to uh, some things that we sort of mentioned in passing before, which is the fact that D.C. has a local government. And I, I I think it's important for folks who are visiting or planning to visit to understand how that is different from the federal government and that, you know, you mentioned the D.C. budget several times. That is completely different from the federal budget, which is currently trillions of dollars in debt. (laughs) And the D.C. budget, which you mentioned, is billions of dollars in the other direction, I think, maybe billions, millions. I'm getting my numbers a little mixed (laughs) up in my head right now. But We have a local government, just a city government, same as any other city. We have a mayor. We have a city council. And we vote for them in elections. Uh, If the trash doesn't get picked up, I call my city council member's office. It's the same way that it works in many other places. So how is it unique or how is it not from other cities? Yeah. So we have a a strong mayor system, first of all. So we have a mayor who is 
elected by a majority. Um, and um, we have a city council um, and they sort of serve on serve as checks on each other. In terms of budgeting, which I hope is not too dry of a topic, um, the way that this works is, you know, the mayor releases a budget and then the council makes its amendments this to it. This is Schoolhouse Rock style stuff it right is, here. Yeah, here you go. Yeah, how a bill becomes a law, um, how a budget becomes a budget. <laughs> um, and so then it's workshop. So, you know, I talk about the budget because like, Budgets tend to show where priorities are, right? Um, but also, like, that's the most tangible way to, like, basically take that, you know, when we talk about D.C. having 700,000 residents, it matters because they pay taxes. And that's what goes into the things that you see. Um, you know, of course, people who stick to the federal core are going to see monuments that are taken care of by the feds. Um, or not taken care or of. Or not taken care of. In the case of the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Memorial and some of the others. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as soon as you step outside of that, you're in a sidewalk that's maintained by the District of Columbia. Um, and there are some weird and funny overlaps. You know, the National Park Service has authority over more of our parks than I think most D.C. residents would like. Um, or even realize. Or even realize. Um, so there is some, you know, conflict there. But, like, for the most part, like, Again, we're we're a city. We ha- we we build our infrastructure and we pay for it. Um, and when you say we pay taxes, you know we're both Washington D.C. residents. So I have a business. My business earns income for me, and I have to pay an income tax on that, which is separate from the federal income tax. So I pay, get out my ten forty at the end of the year, fill it out, send off my money to Uncle Sam at the IRS, and then I also fill out a separate form, send it to the D.C. government for the tax that I owe to them. Yeah, exactly. Um, we are um, prevented by our home rule charter from running a budget deficit. Um, so, you know, people who trend towards the conservative side of accountability tend to really like that because it says like, oh, you can't you can't you can't run a deficit. Um, that's terrible, um, which, you know, I think there's a lot of competing ideologies on that. But, you know, part of the reason that there was that urgency to, you know, D.C.'s population was tanking and sort of anybody who could leave the city left. Or anybody who, you know, had the resources to make a choice about leaving would, you know, kind of got out of here. There was very much a sense of, like, last person out, turn the lights off. Um, you know, the reason to attract uh, to deliberately attract people back to a city that can't run a congressional uh, congressionally prevented from running a budget deficit is so that you can have your autonomy back. Um, so, you know, D.C. was under the authority of a federally appointed control board, um, which I think is a very painful memory um, that like kind of haunts a lot of decisions that are still made here in terms of like we don't want to overspend and we don't want to gamble with our budget because we don't want this congressional takeover again. So when you visit, yeah, like you said, when you're crossing the street, if it's uh, a you know proper intersection where you don't have to press a button, for example, that's maintained by the District of Columbia Department of Transportation. Yes. And if it's one of those on the National Mall where you press the button and wait, five minutes for the light to change, that's under the jurisdiction of the National Park Service. Yep. So that's, that's one of the quirks uh, about living here is that we have a lot of national or federal stuff just sort of mixed in. And you can see that maybe when you're walking down Pennsylvania Avenue and you have you know a mix of federal government office buildings, the Department of Justice, and then you have a private museum, which unfortunately will be closing soon, <laughs> soon to be private graduate school, yes. and you have an embassy. And uh, so it's just an interesting mix of local and federal stuff all kind of meshed together. Yeah. And, you know, you and I obviously like know this because we know this and we're into it and we kind of know what we're looking at. Um, and, you know, maybe it's too subtle of a detail for a lot of people, but I do think that that kind of like is like to a degree sort of like what 
makes DC what it is? Is is that interplay is really substantial? Yeah, a, a place where I think a lot of visitors notice this is with law enforcement, because in the city we have what I describe as a bajillion different law enforcement agencies. So if you were in Baltimore, for example, you would mostly see Baltimore City Police. Maybe you'd see Maryland State Police, depending on the situation, but that's mostly it. But around here, there's different agencies all over the place. If you're on the National Mall, you're going to see the National Park Service Police Department. If you're at the Capitol, you're going to see the Capitol Police Department. If you're at the White House, you're going to see Secret Service. And then around the city, you'll see the Metropolitan Police Department, which is what we would call the local city uh, police department as well. So that's another example of just lots of different federal, local, and sometimes there's confusion over who has jurisdiction in this place. Yeah. Yeah. It gets really, really into the weeds really quickly. Um, Visitors may notice that on Pennsylvania Avenue, there's a center running bike lane. Um, And it took years. Like, I mean, lots of bike lane projects, unfortunately, take years. But it took, like, many, many more years to get that project together um, because of the various agencies involved with that, which included, like, I mean, the District Department of Transportation, sure, but also the Commission on Fine Arts, uh, National Capital Parks and Planning, um, and a couple of other agencies that like just have their fingers in stuff, um, especially with Pennsylvania Avenue, because it's such a relevant street to so many of those agencies. Well, Alex, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your insights into this topic. I hope that everyone who's stuck around uh, appreciates that there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in the city that is not just the national federal stuff that you find when you go on TripAdvisor and look for things to do. And what we I don't think we mentioned before is that you are not just an advocate, but you're also a writer. You've written many, many great articles <laughs> over the years, including a great one in City Lab, which was published last year, two years ago, that I'm going to make sure I put into the show notes so that everyone has a chance to read. It has a really great perspective on this exact topic uh, and make sure that they have links to all of your other writings and resources as well. Yeah, totally. Um, I am super happy to be here. This is one of my favorite topics. Um, I will say that, do you mind if I read some of this? It's a good article, okay. so I think uh, okay. it's perfectly... So sort of relevant to our conversation, um, you know, this is a piece that I wrote last year. Um, and in it, I said that many district defenders invoke the adage that the go-go swinging, mumbo-sauce swilling real city of locals is D.C. while the congressional clowns live in Washington. But that's a bit reductive. The federal government has substantially shaped the District of Columbia, and the city's deep segregation is not a tale of two cities. That's what D.C. is. It's as complex and varied and subject to a swirl of political, cultural, and consumptive factors as anywhere else. D.C.'s particulars are specific, but not all are exclusive to it. So that is a teaser. (laughs) If you're interested, go check out the show notes, find that article, and give it a read. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.